we started feeling more comfortable about posting something in person. And I think there was this, at least in New York, this hunger to meet people again. And it was kind of this blank slate. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Scaling DevTools, the show that investigates how DevTools go from zero to one. I'm joined today by Paul Butler, who is the co-founder of Drifting in Space, which is pushing the limits of browser technology, which is a very vague way of saying that they're doing some really cool stuff. And uh, Paul, do you want to tell us a bit about what that cool stuff is? Sure, yeah. And thanks for having me, Jack. Um, so the genesis of what we're trying to do is, is we've seen you know the, this movement of application software into the browser over the last decade plus, I guess you kind of trace it back to um, database apps in the in the 2000s and Google Docs and, and that kind of thing in that era. Um, and over time, we've seen more and more advanced applications being kind of shoved into the browser, things like 3D editing, video editing, um, CAD software, geographic uh, data manipulation, things like that. So uh, what we're trying to do is address the pain points that come up when you're trying to run these applications that expect a heavyweight, maybe 32 gigabytes of memory, 64 gigs of memory. Uh, and they're trying to kind of push that down to WebAssembly where they get about four gigs in the best case scenario. Um, so what, what we've kind of done is built a way for these browser-based applications to spin up what we think of as kind of a child process that runs on a remote machine, a server. Um, and they get a low latency direct connection to that. Um, they can send messages and split compute really between the two. Um, we even have a way of doing remote rendering in that child process and then rendering that or sending that back as a compressed video back to the client and rendering it in inside the application as a React component. So uh, we've really been going after these problems of these pain points that emerge when these heavyweight kind of industrial scale applications come into the browser. Yeah, that's really cool. And so like, is it kind of, you know, your democratizing the ability to build like the next Figma in a way like? Yeah, we definitely took inspiration from Figma's architecture. Um, they've been very generous in, in posting a lot of blog posts about what they've done, which was really, I think at the time, pretty pioneering in, in their architecture. Uh, we've seen similar architectures in things like GitHub Codespaces and, and other places um, where they talk about it a little bit less, but I guess because VS Code's open source, you kind of get a sense of it. Um, where we we're kind of extending it is sort of taking the underlying infrastructure that Figma built and then adding this high compute component. So um, if you want to make the scheduler aware of how much memory, how much uh, GPU capacity, CPU capacity each of these machines have uh, so that you could build an app that, for example, pulls down 10 gigabytes of data for each user. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you can't do that at Facebook scale, but you can do that on the scale of of an internal app at a company that deals with large data or uh, an expensive SaaS app or that kind of thing. Yeah, so it could actually be like an even more powerful Figma. Yeah, and, and maybe not, um, you know, I think vector graphics editing, there's, uh, it's inherently a relatively computationally lightweight problem. Um, so they, they can do, do a lot where they just compile stuff to WebAssembly and do it in the browser. Um, <clears throat> That makes a lot of sense for something like Figma. It doesn't. It doesn't go all the way for something like a video editor or a three D modeling tool, where you may have uh, more computationally heavyweight stuff to do there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, 
sorry, and I'm still like digging in just to make sure. So like you're saying that like if someone were to build like a video, like a seriously computational video editor, they could they could do that in the browser if they're using plain. Um, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. Very, very cool and exciting. Um, yeah. And I like the way you talked about it off offline that like the expectation is that browser apps kind of have to be a lot f- further behind des- desktop apps. And it seems like you're kind of bringing that kind of parity. Yeah, I think there's been this, people have been excited about just being able to run stuff in the browser. And I think it just, it it's a really low friction experience that you can, you know, open up a URL and be immersed in an application. And so I think for a while we've, we've kind of put up with the, that type of application being janky and slow and less featureful. And I think what we've seen lately and what we're going to see over the next few years as technologies like WebGPU, WebTransport, uh, WebCodex really take off is that that will change. There, there will be more of a competition for performance instead of just uh, the table stakes running in the browser piece. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and uh, and that kind of brings us on to uh, the main topic that we're going to talk about today, um, which is that you're kind of somewhere where you're kind of pushing the limits of like what what's possible. And you've built this community of um, an in-person community called the Browser Tech Community. Yeah, we, we started as Browser Tech New York, uh, and now now it's just Browser Tech uh, because we have one in we did one in San Francisco as well, and we're actually looking at other cities too. Amazing, and uh, this is something that like we're kind of you know especially after COVID, everything went online. It's like you know how many Slack group communities are we all in? Um, but actually, like in person, I'm I'm in a community in London, and it's just been incredible. And so, I'd love to hear about like what it's been like to kind of organize that. Yeah, so um, so we we started as a company uh, kind of early 2022. So we it was still you know people were still wearing masks. It was still uh, in in person events were still kind of frowned upon. Um, about I guess it was uh, August we started feeling more comfortable about hosting something in person. And I think there was this, at least in New York, this hunger to meet people again. And a lot of the the previous, the meetups, pre-COVID meetups that people were hosting uh, kind of ended. Um, I think people just moved on. It's a lot of energy to, to organize these things. Uh, if they had corporate sponsorship, there's often changes like turnover corporate in, in the company. So there's kind of harder to reboot that, that thing. So it was kind of this blank slate uh, where there weren't a lot of these recurring meetups happening in New York, uh, at least. And we also felt like where the where the browser browser based development community had kind of gone in um, over the last couple of years during COVID, there was kind of this blank space where um, where what we saw is kind of a bifurcation of web development. Uh, where on one hand you have people, you know, building Next.js apps and Gatsby blogs and care about SEO and bundlers and and that kind of thing. And then this other world of people who are more approaching application development as desktop application developers would, you know, their code bases were Rust that they're compiling to WebAssembly. And they're, um, in some cases, they were even avoiding the DOM and doing uh, direct-to-GPU rendering. And so you got these applications that were, yes, they're running in the browser, but like, is are the developers really 
identifying as web developers. Um, they just happen to be deploying to the browser because the browser is kind of the new operating system. So we kind of looked at it from this angle of if the browser is the new operating system, uh, where are the people developing for this operating system, developing applications and, and pushing the limits of this operating system meeting? And we found that the web development, traditional web development communities were not really that, or if they were that, they were kind of watered down by, you know, SEO and other things that were not relevant to those developers. So we were interested just because we wanted to be in the same room as them. We, If this meetup existed, we would not have probably created it. But because we felt that there was a void there, we started, um, started meeting with some folks. We initially just kind of invited we, we looked at who was building these applications in New York, uh, invited everybody out for tacos and uh, Runway ML, uh, who's building a video editor in the browser. Um, when we asked them about it, they were like, let's, you know, we could host this. So uh, we basically just got a bunch of uh, takeout tacos and and had tacos with, uh, with a number of the other uh, application developers in the city. And that was kind of when we realized that there was this core mass of people and that we should start doing kind of a more formal meetup with talks and things like that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Could I actually like ask like what what kind of topics were people talking about on the uh, yeah, so we've had talks on things like um, like high performance uh, with React. Um, we had a talk from Runway actually where um, where the talk was sort of about creative ML tools in the browser. Um, we've had a talk on scaling up DuckDB in the browser. Um, and, uh, one of the, one of the coolest ones I think was, uh, talk from Womp, which is a 3d editor that runs in the browser. Um, and they actually do server-side pixel streaming down of GPU rendered content. So it's a, a really fascinating and, and I think really powerful architecture. So, um, it was really interesting to see that one. Yeah. Amazing. And, and when you say like about, um, being in the same room, you just wanted to be in the same room as, as people building you know, like kind of advanced tools for the browser. Like what, what do you think are the benefits of being in the same room? I think there's a lot of, a lot of these people building in different verticals or different uh, types of software are, when we've found this kind of talking to a lot of these people, when we were just trying to, to have customer conversations, we found that people were discovering the same things or having the same problems. Um, and there there wasn't really this means of knowledge sharing between between those folks. Like, I think in some cases they'd have a company blog and maybe it'd get on Hacker News and the other people would see it. But um, there wasn't really this community the same way that in more mature communities like web development in general, like React communities, felt community. Um, I think in in a lot of cases there are these online and offline communities where people are talking to each other about the tools that they use. Um, when it came to kind of these raw, you know, just pushing the edge of these browser APIs. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of interested in like WebRTC, WebGL, basically all the web prefix uh, technologies. So there were meetups for individual ones of those. Like there's some cities have WebAssembly meetups, some cities have WebGL meetups, but um, people kind of tackling this application building and, and using all of these APIs and, uh, just really trying to build advanced applications in the browser. That was where we kind of felt like there was this blank space. Mm. Yeah. So it's like people, it's less about the exact technology, but more like the goal that they're trying to reach. 
Yeah, I would say it's it's kind of it's less about. I mean, it sort of is. A, we're very interested in the in the surface area of the browser APIs. So the things that are are and aren't possible uh, in the browser are definitely on on topic for us. But um, we're equally interested in kind of what people build on top of that. So the the way that they build applications, the design choices that they make in doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of like drifting in space. How how is like drifting in space's relationship with the community that you've built? Um, so we we kind of you know in in building this community, I've kind of tried to keep the browser tech brand and and community a little bit arm's length in that um, you know we don't want people to see it and be like oh that's that's just drifting in space's megaphone. We we kind of want to um, fill in the what we see as the blank space and and build sort of a community where um, you know we're we obviously benefit from having it. We, we give, uh, we kind of treat the meetups as a chance where we can demo some stuff as well. So we usually have a couple talks and then, uh, demo some stuff we're working on. Um, and then I run a newsletter as well. So the, the newsletter occasionally mentions some stuff that we've been working on, but, um, is also kind of independent, uh, in, in my voice anyway. I mean, obviously it's not, it's not independent. I'm writing it, but, uh, it's, I try to kind of keep an independent voice with it. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's like a couple of ways that maybe it like does help with getting um, getting drifting in space out there amongst people that would be interested. Mm-hmm. I, I could imagine it also like helps feed into like your product development stuff a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of this. Um, I mean, I think one of the reasons that it's it's easier for me to do this newsletter and things is that it's I'm kind of just writing what I've already learned in the process of talking to a lot of customers. Um, following what's going on in the industry. So um, I realized I was kind of already building up this base of knowledge in my head of what's happening in the browser right now and who's on the forefront of it and what they're doing and how they're doing it. So um, like when when we see a new app, we love to just like, especially collaborative apps, we'll, we'll sign up for the beta and run it in the office and play with it and talk about how they built things. And you know, we have a lot of fun doing that. And I think there's other people who, enjoy that type of content as well. So, um, so yeah, one of the, one of the things that we like doing is just playing with new apps. And so writing about that comes very naturally to us. That's really cool. So is that like a big part of what your content that you put out is about just like kind of deconstructing like, Oh, how, how did they build this? Um, yeah, it tends not to be like in deconstructing individual apps. Although I've, I've kind of thought about going down that path a bit. Cause I do think that's interesting if, uh, you know, we, we don't want to alienate anybody. So with permission from the app developers, um, but what more, more of what we do is kind of looking at, because we kind of break down the, what these applications are doing, we do observe trends, uh, and then we can write about those trends. Um, so the last issue, for example, was about GPU rendered UIs. Um, so these are applications that are, um, talking directly to a GPU API like uh, like OpenGL or WebGL to render their entire UI. So these are apps that don't talk to the DOM at all, except to kind of create a canvas element and then get the context of the canvas element, um, and then basically render render everything. We started to see this emerging pattern over the last few years and put it into a, a blog post. Yeah, really cool, really cool kind of actually stepping back a little bit, like we've got that you've like, it's amazing community that you've built and it's like kind of a very targeted community. Um, one of the things that two of our guests mentioned recently is that you have to be very um, 
sure of who your kind of persona or like your target customers. And it sounds like, um, first of all, that you are pretty sure on that. Um, you're not nodding your head. So um, yeah. <laughs> how did you come to that, that place? Um, yeah, so I think the, so I would define our, our customers as kind of people building really ambitious applications in the browser, people kind of pushing the edges of what's possible in the browser. Um, and I think that really just comes from what the technology is. So I think of the technology as kind of a solution to the problem where you've hit the limit of what you can do in the browser itself. Uh, either because you're dealing with so much data that you don't want to send it all over the wire down to the, the user. Uh, we were talking about like the video editing use case earlier. If you're trying to do 4K video, you might have gigabytes, you know, many gigabytes, terabytes of, of data, depending on how much video content you're working with. Um, so you, you, know, you can't send that down to the browser, even if the browser could hold it, you have network problems. Um, another example of this is uh, data visualizations with many, many points. Um, we have a demo recently where we'll, we'll load in a bunch of a gigantic point cloud, millions and millions of points, um, load it into the point that it chokes the browser, and then we can almost instantly switch to remote cloud rendering of that on a remote GPU, dedicated GPU machine, uh, and streaming that back. So that type of thing, um, you know, that doesn't, if you're building a blog site or building uh, e-commerce or, or something like that, it's, you know, you're not the customer. Um, but if you're building really ambitious desktop class applications, I almost think of it as, a, as like if you're building the type of application that if it were running on the browser, somebody would upgrade their RAM to run it. That's kind of the, the, uh, the scope of what we're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess you've got like a nice advantage in some ways that it's not like a subtle difference. Like <laughs> I, I, get, I know like some agents, that some companies struggle with like, are we like early stage people, kind of like medium? And yours is like, if <laughs> they're really doing something ambitious, very obvious if, they're, if they need, if they're like our target audience, it seems. Yeah, and we find we find that they can sort of self-identify in, in many cases as well, where people sort of see, okay, I've got this use case, uh, and I, you know, I thought of an infrastructure like this in my head, and I thought of all the things that I would need to build it, and thought it would be better if somebody else had built it, and then I found Plane, and then you know, so it, it kind of goes from there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then the other question I've got is like. At the moment, I think you're very focused on open source, your open source projects. Is that correct? Yeah, we're we're focusing a lot on open source. Um, the way that it works with with Plane and Jamsocket, uh, so Plane is kind of our flagship open source project, um, and then Jamsocket is built on top of it. So Jamsocket is kind of a managed version of it, um, and it's really kind of a, a spectrum from completely using the managed product to, to completely using the open source product um, where there's also an option in the middle, which is um, you can kind of run the worker nodes. The, you, you actually run the compute on your machines, but use our central control plane to coordinate it. Um, and that that's kind of a nice middle ground where, you know, none of the data goes through us. None of the application data goes through us, only the coordination data and routing. And so we're kind of just taking care of the DNS and the certificates and um, orchestration, um, scheduling, that kind of thing on our end. Mm, super cool. So how are you like 
kind of thinking about like uh, getting customers that like how do they how do people start paying you money? I guess is like does it go from like yeah yeah so uh, so it's for you know we we get paid for the infrastructure um, so people running it open source um, I mean we maybe could negotiate a support contract but in theory they can do it without even talking to us um, so the money comes from the managed side um, it's kind of like a any other usage-based um, type thing for the completely managed side. And then in the middle where they're kind of running it as a control plane, it's more of a, a monthly fee um, and then a fee per, per machine that they attach to it, kind of a data dog model. Yeah, nice. Like are these kind of individuals, like it seems like it's kind of a, it would be like a larger organization type of thing commonly. It does tend to be. I think right now with with the way the platform is, it's, um, I mean, it it is fairly simple in the sense that the surface area is fairly small. Basically, you push a Docker container to us and then instead of deploying it immediately, what you get is an API. And every time you hit the API, we send you back a host name that is a basically an ephemeral instance of the container that you spawned up. Um, so the way that you kind of use that as a child process is from the browser, you can open a WebSocket connection to it. Um, obviously, whatever you're running in the container needs to, to have a WebSocket connection server built into it. So um, we're not prescriptive about what framework you're using inside the container. You know, you could you could serve a WebSocket from a Node.js or Python or, or whatever, um, but you can connect to that from the client. Uh, when that connection goes away, if that's the only connection that exists to it, we will schedule that uh, container to shut down. So it's it's kind of ephemeral, short lived, but well, we call it session live. So it's like, as long as the tab is open, we keep the, the process alive. Um, so in, to, to answer your question about kind of who's using this, um, it we do find people kind of come in to poke around with it as individuals. Um, where we find larger companies kind of come in is um, typically at this point, seed and series A kind of stage companies. So it tends to be people building new stuff or scaling stuff, um, kind of going from, being able to run everything on one vertically scaled out machine to realizing that uh, they need to add more machines, but kind of doing that naively, just putting that one machine they had behind a load balancer doesn't work anymore because they relied on having state in memory and things like that. Okay. And then, so they, they have like this pain and so that, is it like they, they remember like, oh, what if plane could help us with this? Or, or yeah. like, how do they? Yeah, often when we hear from people, it is um, it is like, okay, I saw, you know, I, I saw plane on GitHub or on Hacker News or, or something uh, six months ago, and didn't think much of it at the time, but came around to this now, and I was like, oh wait, I've seen a solution to this problem, and they almost like have this this moment of enlightenment. Uh, where they're like, oh, that's what Plane was trying to do. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take a look now. So it is kind of a slow burn that way um, because I think this is not, you know, we've had to, to really create the vocabulary even around this problem. Um, we call this a session backend when when we do this and, uh, we, you know, when we spin up one of these processes that lives for the lifetime of a tab. But Figma was doing that. Um, Codespaces was doing that. All these applications were, were already doing something like this. They just didn't really have uh, a word for it. So uh, we've had to really educate people about that architecture. And um, that's been slow. But um, 
But when they get it, they get it. Yeah. Is there like any kind of things that you've learned from like having this where it's like a new concept? Um, um I would say, um, so we, we decided, you know, we wrote a blog post about it. We shared the blog post around, um, I think that's helped people that's helped it click for people is sort of having these different approaches to it. There's, there's kind of the explanation that you get if you look at plane directly, which is a very technical explanation. There's the explanation you get if you read our blog post. Um, and there's, you know, I've, I've done pod, you know, other podcasts that you've heard. So, um, yeah, there's sort of, we're just trying to get out there and, and explain it in a bunch of different ways. We have talks that we've given in person and then those are on YouTube. So really just trying to, uh, evangelize this concept and, and talk about it. Um, and you know, when we talk about it, we don't really push plane as, as the only solution. Like we're, I think the best solution, um, because we've, we've been the first to kind of really address it head on as a, as a problem, but, um, there's other people kind of building their own infrastructure on this around Kubernetes and, and things like that. So, um, we're just, yeah, trying to get the word out about this problem and, and, uh, go from there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really awesome. Um, Paul, that is what we've got time for, but we just started doing, um, a takeaways, uh, section, very brief section, um, of takeaways that you've got either that we covered in the episode or that you think that other DevTool founders, uh, early stage employees at DevTool should kind of, uh, take away from what you've learned. Um, so one, I, I had a hot take on Twitter this week, so I'll, I'll repeat that. Um, it's that I think that if you're trying to break through on Hacker News, that a cookie banner is detrimental. Um, and I had one of the founders of, of Y Combinator actually uh, commented and he was like, yeah, if I see something uh, that has a cookie banner, like my bounce rate is 50% immediately. Um, but my theory around this is, is a bit more intricate. It's, it's not that the cookie banner is always detrimental. It's that it's detrimental when you have no social proof. And if you're trying to make the main page from the new page, which is kind of the process, uh, you have you start with no social proof, so that's that's been my uh, my hot take this week. Wow, you heard it here first. Remove your cookie banners, <laughs> um, and remove the cookie. I mean, I'm not saying violate yeah. GDPR. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should clarify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, do it by the book. Because um, yeah, I looked at some of these sites like Fly.io, uh, Superbase, like they they just don't drop cookies if you land on the blog. So, and I you know changed. Uh, I tried it from a few different IPs and, and that sort of stuff. We also don't don't drop cookies. We use Plausible. So, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. That's a very good tip. <laughs> um, yeah, Paul. Um, so if people want to learn more about yourself or they want to learn more about Drifting in Space or Browser Tech, uh, where can they learn more? Yeah, so um, so we write a newsletter on Browser Tech. Um, it tends to be either a link digest or uh, in weeks where... I have something to say. It tends to be more commentary. So that is at digest.browsertech.com. Uh, browsertech.com is also where we have our, our uh, in-person events listed. Um, the database I mentioned is DriftDB, so driftdb.com. Uh, our site is, we're drifting in space. It's drifting in dot space, drifting in one word, dot space. Uh, and then on Twitter, we're drifting underscore corp. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks for joining, Paul, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Jack. Bye.